In 2006, a man wearing a red shirt and a Santa Claus mask walked into a credit union in Memphis, Tennessee. He was passing out candy canes to several of the customers before he handed a note to the teller at the counter, demanding all the money in her drawer. It was a Christmas Eve stick-up. Once the man had the loot, he dashed out of the building. The naughty Santa Claus is yet to be caught. This also happened, though, in 2009 at a SunTrust bank in Nashville, Tennessee. A Santa Claus walked into the bank, waved a handgun, and demanded money. This time, the thief went all out with his costume. He wore a full Santa suit, had a white beard, a red hat, a red fur-lined coat with pants with white trim. You might have expected this Santa Claus to get his getaway vehicle to be a reindeer-pulled sleigh. Instead, try a gray sedan. Anyway, this particular Santa Claus commented to the customers in the bank that he was stealing the money in order to pay his elves. It's safe to say bank robbers impersonating Kris Kringle are going to give the jolly old fella a bad name. You expect a Santa Claus to say, what do you want for Christmas, little fella? Not stick him up. But for the customers and the tellers in these two burglarized banks, their Christmas was a hands-up Christmas, as was the very first Christmas celebration. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone was robbed in Bethlehem. The angelic host didn't burst into the shepherd's fields and shout, get your hands in the air, this is a holdup. None of the shepherds were told, stick them up. But that was the reaction of everyone that witnessed God's miracle that first Christmas. In a very real sense, almost all of the Christmas characters lifted their hands to the heavens. Everyone surrendered to the will of God. They were overwhelmed with wonder and awe, praise and worship. They were arrested by God's glory. No one who participated in the original Christmas celebration was the least bit concerned about what they wanted that year for Christmas. Instead, everyone was stunned by what God had done. You know, it's interesting that whenever human beings get excited, when they get either thrilled or scared, their instinctive reaction is to thrust their hands up toward the sky. When our emotions erupt, our hands tend to go up the signal for a touchdown in football or a made field goal or a three-point basket in basketball is hands straight up. The reflex of a runner stretching across the finish line is to throw his hands up into the air. A baseball player who hits a home run will often raise his hand upward. In fact, the umpire signal for a home run, again, is an upward raised hand. Hands up is our instinctive reaction to a triumph. And when a guy dressed in a Santa Claus suit sticks the nose of a gun in your face, you get real excited. And in response, what do you do? Obviously, you stick up your arms and your hands straight up into the air. A hands-up posture is a universal sign of surprise and surrender. 
And this is why I say Christmas needs to be celebrated hands up. For Christmas is all about God's biggest surprise and our deepest surrender. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 is the verse that I almost used as my text this morning. Paul writes to his sidekick, Timothy, Therefore, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And that should especially be the case at Christmas time. People everywhere should get their hands up for Christmas. The story of the first Christmas should have an uplifting effect on our hearts and our minds and our emotions and certainly our hands. The proper response to Christmas is wonder and worship and surrender and great joy. I've heard it said, the opposite of joy isn't sorrow, but unbelief. Hey, if there's no joy in your heart this morning, it means that your faith isn't focused on the truth of the Christmas message. The first words out of the angel's mouth were, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And this is still God's offer to believing hearts during the Christmas season. Believe the Savior has come, and God will fill your heart with good tidings of great joy. This great joy is the reason that singing and Christmas go together. What other time of the year do we sit around the piano and we sing seasonal songs? It doesn't happen at New Year's or Thanksgiving or the 4th of July, not even at Easter. But Christmas has its own music. Christmas songs have their own special designation. They're called carols. At Christmas, the heart that understands is always on the verge of a song. Christmas is a time to sing and shout and marvel and praise with hands stretched upwards. You know, we even take our singing on the road when we go caroling. Several weeks ago, Calvary Chapel went caroling into the surrounding neighborhoods. We had a lot of fun that night. Apparently, it wasn't my group, but one of the groups, the next day, one of the neighbors to whom they had sung that night responded by sending the church a donation. Can you imagine that? It must have been quite a rendition of joy to the world. We got a donation from going Christmas caroling. I thought it might have been my group, but no, it wasn't my group. Apparently, it was the high school group, believe it or not. Our caroling prompted their thanksgiving. My group, though, did have a memorable moment. Vernon's little girl caught her scarf on fire with the candle she was holding in her hand and almost burned down the front porch of the house we were singing to. That was quite an experience. Nick and Larry were quick to get their hands up and put out the blaze. But hey, singing and Christmas go together. Here's the proper Christmas posture for us all. We should lift up our hearts and our voice and our minds and even our hands to God in response to the marvelous gift of His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Author Jan Richardson, she writes this of Christmas. The season of Christmas means there is something on the horizon, the likes of which we have never seen before. But what is possible is to not see it, to miss it, to turn just as it brushes past you, 
And you begin to grasp what it was you missed. Like Moses in the cleft of the rock, watching God's backside fade in the distance. So stay, sit, linger, tarry, ponder, wait, behold, wonder. There will be time enough for running, for rushing, for worrying, for pushing. For now, stay, wait. Something is on the horizon. See, Christmas teaches us that when we least expect it, God may be up to something really, really good. And if we don't want to miss it, we should slow down and listen and ponder. As we've discussed the last three weeks, at Christmas we need to be hands-on, practically involved in the lives of people around us. We need to be hands-off the materialism that the season can breed. And we need to be graciously hands-out to those in need. But Christmas is also a time to be hands up in worship, to surrender our thoughts and our will to God. Here's what I want you to think about over the next two days leading up to Christmas. I want you to ponder, I want you to consider the majesty of Christmas, the mystery of Christmas, and the mercy of Christmas. And I think if you do, it'll get your hands up this Christmas. First, Christmas is full of majesty. Christmas is a kingly, royal event in the history of the world. Think of it. His majesty, King Jesus, was born. Last week I saw where Britain's royal family released their 2018 Christmas cards. Here's Will and Kate and the kids in their blue jeans you know, out in the field somewhere, like most kings and royals go out in the woods, you know, in their blue jeans. Here's Harry and Meghan checking out the fireworks. Even today, Christmas and royalty go together, and it should, for that's what the first Christmas was all about. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angel told the shepherds, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This word Christ has such a rich history. Our English word is a derivative of the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew term Messiah, which means the anointed one. When a Hebrew was chosen for the throne of Israel, a priest or a prophet would bring a ram's horn sloshing over with olive oil and pour it over the person's head. This was the king's anointing. And throughout the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The king's anointing signified that he was God's choice for the throne. He was God's choice to be king. You remember when David was chosen king of Israel, he was an unlikely choice. He was the run of Jesse's litter. His older brothers seemed to be much better candidates. Yet God had instructed the prophet Samuel, The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God chose David because of his hidden qualities. David had a heart for God. He had a sensitivity for spiritual things. He was a man that God could trust. And in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. God later made incredible promises to David that I'm sure David found difficult to even grasp. God predicted that an eternal king would rise from David's family, would sit on an everlasting throne and rule a kingdom that has no end. And through the ages, the Hebrew people looked forward to this coming king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. In fact, listen to what the angel said to Mary when he told her that she would have a child. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Obviously, Jesus was the promised king the prophets had predicted would come and save and rule God's people. That's why Christmas is about the anointing of majesty. It's about the coming of a king. And I think this is where Americans have a hard time with the Christmas story. For we have a president, not a king. The idea of royalty is just not in our DNA. We vote a president into office, and if we don't like him, we vote him out in short order. In contrast, a king reigns for life. In a sense, American revolutions occur every four or eight years. But a king requires true submission. There there is a man who lives in Dayton, Nevada. It's a little bitty burg way out in the desert. And this man sums up the American spirit. His name is Kevin Baugh, but he prefers that you call him His Excellency. For Kevin rules over his own country. He wears a uniform with six huge medals and a gold rope over his shoulder and a general's cap. A flag flaps over his 1.3-acre nation. His neighbors call it his yard. Kevin says that he has his own space program, a model rocket, his own currency, which happens to be tied to the value of chocolate chip cookies, a national sport, broom ball, and a navy consisting of an inflatable raft. Kevin Baugh refers to himself as a micro-nationalist. As he puts it, he rules over the kingdom of me. Though hopefully none of us fly our own flag, I would suggest that at heart, we are all micro-nationalists. We all rule over the kingdom of me. And this is why we need to ponder and consider this Christmas His majesty. For Christmas is about the coming of a king, and He is not me. Born to you this day, In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Later, the Bible calls Jesus King of Kings. Jesus is a macro-nationalist. He is the one and only ultimate ruler. And if you persist in trying to run and control your own little kingdom, you'll end up in trouble with God. There is a throne in every human heart, and it it remains a one-seater. Friends, this is why we need to get our hands up this Christmas and surrender the control of our lives to the only King, 
King Jesus. Over the next few days, I hope you'll seriously ponder the majesty of Christmas. And let's also praise God for the mystery of Christmas. The angel told the shepherds that a king had been born, Christ the Lord. And they were given an astonishing sign to identify this king. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. This king of the universe came to earth bundled as a baby. What a mind-boggling mystery. The almighty God, the king of kings, became a helpless baby. In the days following World War II, Winston Churchill was baffled in his attempts to decipher Russian politics. The inner workings of the Russian hierarchy were a mystery to Churchill. And he famously referred to Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. This could also be a description of the coming of the Messiah. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. We use the term incarnation. That's an interesting word. It means Jesus came incarnate is the Latin word. It means in the flesh or in bodily form. You know, when you go to the supermarket to buy chili, you got two choices. You can buy regular chili or you can buy chili con carne. Carne and incarnation are the same word. Chili con carne is chili with meat. And by the way, I hope you know that your pastor always reaches for the chili with meat. Absolutely. No sissy chili for me. I want a bowl of manly, meaty chili. Well, Jesus was God con carne or God with meat. The Bible teaches us that God is spirit from eternity past to eternity future. God exists as spirit. And yet when God came to earth, he was packaged as meat. Jesus was God, the divine spirit. But he was spirit clothed in meat and muscle and ligaments and skin and bone and hair and teeth. When the king of the universe joined the ranks of humanity, he came as one of its weakest members. Jesus reigned not from a throne, but from a bassinet. George MacDonald, he writes, They were looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. You came as a little baby thing that made a woman cry. Imagine a little baby thing that made a woman cry. The God who fills the heavens came as a little baby thing. Did you hear about the first grade class that decided to have their own Christmas pageant? They told the biblical story and they upgraded it, updated it as only first graders can. All the traditional characters were included in the story, but when it came time for the baby to be born, a doctor in a white coat carrying a black bag with his stethoscope around his neck entered the picture to attend to Mary. He went behind some bales of straw to assist the mother and her newborn. When he emerged, he had a big smile on his face. That's when the first grade doctor announced to all the animals and the onlookers, he says, I've got good news. It's a God. (laughs) And that also could have been said that first Christmas. But it wasn't just a God in that manger. It was the God. 
It was the one true God. You see, it's not that someone became God. It's that God became someone. God became a real flesh and blood and bone human. The Christmas mystery isn't about enlightened humanity rising to the level of deity. It's about the holy God luring himself to the level of a human being. Christmas is about God stooping down, not man standing up. The king occupied a crib. It was the ultimate example of humility. Never in the course of human history has anyone so high descended so low. And it was all such a mystery in what and in how it happened. What was God thinking? I mean, how did he do it? What was it like from the, for the omniscient God to be reduced to the vocabulary and intellect of a baby? For the God who knows all languages to simply coo? What was it like for the omnipotent God who can do all things to be unable to feed himself or even control his own bladder? God put himself in the most humbling of predicaments. You know, with nine grandkids over the last seven years, I've had some baby time lately. I like to put them on my shoulders and let them grab my hair with their fingers and pull. and It's kind of fun. I like to stand them up on the countertops and watch their knees wobble. This week I had some Mabel time. Mabel is our latest one. Just a couple of weeks old. And as I held her, I was so enamored with the tininess of her feet. You know, you forget how small and fragile humans are when they first enter this world. Yet that's how God chose to make his entrance into the world that he created. As a little baby thing. He could have come as a mighty warrior, riding a fiery chariot, a spectacle. Instead, he came almost incognito. One author writes, The high and lofty one made low and helpless. The one who inhabits eternity comes to dwell in time. The one who none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft, indifferent gaze of cattle. The Father of all mercies puts himself at our mercy. What an amazing thought. Over the next few days, why don't you take some time to think and ponder the mystery of Christmas? It will surely get your hands up. And finally, we all should give thought to the mercy behind the Christmas story. This is what caused the angels to reach their crescendo in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Christmas is all about God's merciful peace and goodwill. At the first Christmas, God was glorified in heaven and on earth. Peace and goodwill were made possible for every human heart who believes. I won't ask for a public show of hands, but how many of you have ever occupied a jail cell? Maybe spent the night incarcerated or maybe spent a weekend behind bars. Has it ever happened to you? Once a prisoner described the helplessness of the experience, he said, you wait and wait 
and bide your time behind a bolted door, realizing your only hope for freedom is that for that door to be opened from the outside. And you see, this is the perfect description of Christmas mercy. Mankind has been trapped in a prison called sin. It's a cell that we can't open from the inside. There's no way to set yourself free. Only God can open the door from his side of the lock. None of us can save ourselves. This is why Christmas is an invasion. Here's the glad tidings of Christmas in a nutshell. God turned the knob. God turned the knob. God had mercy. One author I read communicates a profound thought. Once you see God in a stable, you can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go in his wild pursuit of man. In the holiness of God, we're present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child. Then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that his holiness can be present there too. Always remember, just where God seems most helpless, there he is most strong. And just where, he, we, just where we least expect him, he comes most fully. Christmas is all about God's passion. And his mercy, it reveals his unwillingness to let our sin stand in his way. As stated, Christmas is about God's wild pursuit of man. See, it takes more than a sense of obligation or duty to drive a person to such a wild pursuit. It, it, it requires passion. Don't miss this point. It was a burning love. It was a relentless mercy that drove God to journey from heaven to a manger, onto a cross, throughout the ages, even down to your heart today. Imagine God's throne, and before it stands a throng of people, people from all over the world, from every tribe and from every nation, billions of people. They're all awaiting God's judgment. And near the front of the crowd, there's a large group that's obviously angry. One man screams out, how can God judge us? What could he know about suffering, the suffering that we've endured? A lady in the group, she rolls up her shirt sleeve and she reveals the tattooed number she received in a Nazi concentration camp. And she cries out, we were uprooted and abused. We were tortured and beaten and executed. A black man lowers the collar on his shirt and reveals the ugly rope burn around his neck. And he shouts, what about this? I was lynched for no other reason than my race. Another man chimes in. We suffocated on slave ships. We were torn from our families. We toiled until death was a welcomed release. And all across the plain, thousands of people, each with their own complaint, about the evil that God has allowed into the world give voice to their objections. And the common refrain is heard over and over again. What does God know about suffering? God lives in heaven where there's no weeping and fear and pain and hunger and hatred. God lives a sheltered life. What right does He have to judge us humans? All across the plain, each group chose a leader. 
the person who, from their group who had suffered the most intensely. There was a Jew, a black man, a Native American, an illegitimate child, an untouchable from India, a sweatshop worker, someone from Hiroshima, an inmate from a Siberian prison camp, a victim of the Me Too tragedies. They all had come together and they had prepared their case against God. And they had concluded, God can't judge us. Not, not after what he, he has suffered. God can't judge. God can judge us only after he has suffered what we have endured. That was their complaint. They figured that God had to be sentenced to a terrible punishment to compensate. First of all, God had to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, the delegation set certain boundaries that would keep him from using his divine powers to temper his suffering. They said, let him be born a Jew and let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted and his parentage questioned. And let him champion a cause so just yet so radical that it would bring on him hate and condemnation and cause the powers that be to plot his murder. And let him be betrayed by his closest friends. And let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him see what it is to be completely abandoned and left terribly alone by both God and man. Let him be tortured and die. And let him die the most humiliating death as part of a bloody crucifixion alongside common thieves. As the leaders of these angry groups announced God's sentence, cheers went up from all across the plain until the last leader spoke. And afterwards, there was a long, long silence. Everyone was frozen. No one could move, for suddenly it hit them. God in Jesus had already served his sentence. Christmas teaches us that when we end our lives on earth, and we stand before God, the righteous judge. We'll look into eyes and we will behold his mercy. In the end, we will all deal with a God who is acquainted with our grief and has experienced our sorrows and has felt the limitations of our weakness and has been tested by our temptations and is now willing to extend mercy to forgive even the vilest of our sins Aren't you glad? Aren't you so, so thankful? Merciful eyes refuse to wink at sin. God will never ignore our sin, yet his eyes of mercy are willing to look past our sin and probe our hearts for faith. And where he finds faith in the Savior, God bestows mercy and God grants forgiveness. His mercy alone is reason enough to get our hands up this Christmas. Luke chapter 2 verse 9 tells us something marvelous, something miraculous happened to the shepherds who were watching their flocks on that first Christmas Eve. As Luke puts it, the glory of the Lord shone around them. In the fields of Bethlehem, they were surrounded by the majesty of God. They ran to the manger to behold the mystery of God incarnate. And then they went away rejoicing that they had experienced God's incredible mercy. And thus we're told in verse 20, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, 
Obviously, they had experienced a hands-up Christmas. And this is my prayer for you and yours this holiday season. May you be surrounded by the glory of God, His majesty, the mystery of it all, and most importantly, His mercy. A hands-up Christmas doesn't mean a stick-up. I'm not suggesting you need to be robbed, but I will tell you, if you approach Christmas with your hands up, with wonder and worship, with surrender to His will, it will steal away your doubts and your discontent and your cynicism and your discouragement, even your bitterness and pride. A hands-up Christmas is good for the soul. We all need to be arrested this Christmas by the glory of God. And we should respond to His glory by lifting our heart and voice and hands and praise. If you want this Christmas to be your best Christmas ever, hands down, then why don't you make it a hands-on and a hands-off and a hands-out and especially a hands-up Christmas Christmas?